Hey, it is officially Christmas season, and uh, I love this time of year. But 38 years in, there's not much that surprises me anymore. Um, you know, Christmas is fun with small kids. You get, to, you get to live out the newness of Christmas through them. But for most of us, and you know, myself included, Christmas is pretty familiar. Uh, there's not much that's unexpected. And don't get me wrong, I love Christmas. Um, but people often say familiarity breeds contempt. And I guess, you know, I've just grown familiar with Christmas. And, and because of that, I, I understand why a lot of people have a hard time with Christmas. I mean, the, the traditions for a lot of people just start to, to get stale. Um, all the festivities and, and the decorations, they do very little to actually hide the, the pain of real life. And you got Hallmark that shows Christmas movies nonstop through the month of December. But you change the channel, you know, just even one channel to the next. And, and it just shows all the scandals and the abuse and the horrors that are taking place in the world. And so all of the trappings and the lights and the events of Christmas, they end up really just seeming like a thin coat of paint uh, that's painted over our broken down world that before long is going to be washed away anyway. Christmas will come and go and it'll be January and we'll be back to the daily grind of everyday life. And got me thinking, is that what Christmas really is? Is that all there is to Christmas? Are there any surprises that are left for cynical and hurting people like us? You know, God has always acted in, in surprising ways to save his people. And one of the ways that he does that is through miraculous births. And we're in this series that we started last week called Miraculous Births. And I, and I, I love the idea of this series because when all is dark, when, when hope is gone, a baby is born. Christmas is all about God accomplishing the unexpected, the, the astonishing, the unthinkable in order to save his people. And, and if this is how God has always acted, then maybe even in a broken and messed up world like ours, God still has something surprising to show us. If you got your Bibles, flip over to the Old Testament, Judges chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. Um, Judges 13, and I want to give just a little bit of background context as, as we're getting to that. Because up until this point in time, the, the people of Israel, in their nation, they have been rescued from Egypt. They've been rescued from slavery there. They've been made into a nation. Uh, they, they belong to God, and according to God's promises, they are now in, in settled in the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that they had been promised many generations ago. But when you get to the book of Judges, you, we read the story of what happened after that first generation of leaders died. Though they had led the people into settling into the land of, of Israel, the land of Canaan, they didn't have full possession of it. They had not fully driven out all of the other nations, all of the other people groups that lived there. And so their final command from, from this first generation of Israelite leaders was to continue their obedience in conquering the land. Each tribe had been assigned a, a portion of the land that they were responsible for, that they were going to settle in and inhabit, and your job was to rid that area of everybody else that lived there. And that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, you're moving into a neighboring place and you're just going to take over. But understand this, the reason they were told to do this is because of all of the evil practices that those nations were involved in. And the, the rest of the book of Judges, though, is basically about Israel's failure to carry out that command. Instead of going to war, the Israelites got comfortable comfortable they began mingling with surrounding nations and they adopted these horrific customs of of child sacrifice i mean think about how horrible that is 
I mean, these other nations, this, these are the people that they were neighbors with, that they were commanded to drive out of the land. Their act of worship was to sacrifice their kids. And not say, like, sacrifices in, hey, I'm, I'm going to set you apart for, for service to our God. No, no, sacrifices in, like, I'm going to kill you. That was their act of worship. That's a, what a terrible way to worship. And so as a result, because of Israel's complacency, because of their comfortableness, because of their disobedience in driving out everybody else, God would hand the people over of, of Israel over to their enemies. And they would, they would begin to be oppressed. But as it seemingly always went, when they would be oppressed and they would be enslaved by these other groups, they would, they would recognize their sin, they would cry out to God, and God in His mercy would raise up a deliverer, and in this case a judge, and that person would come in and they would, they would lead the Israelites in defeating their enemies and they would bring about a time of peace until the next time the people of Israel rebel. And this pattern of, of sin and oppression and repentance and deliverance and peace it's repeated at least six times throughout the book of Judges. The, the book of Judges, as we get here, we, we just constantly move along this cycle. And by the time we get to this point, see, they're trying to make me laugh. They didn't think I'd call them out for it, but they're trying to make me laugh. Uh, as we get to this point in, in, the, in the book of Judges, the nation of Israel is just spiraling downward. It, it is a downward spiral and they're at the bottom of it. And that gets us to Judges chapter 13. And so if you've got your Bibles, flip over to Judges 13. And it's, it's a, a decently lengthy passage. But we're going to read it all. It's up on, it'll be on the screen as well. But, but here's what, what the, the writer says. Starting at verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice that. It says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel, of the, Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of, a God, angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, then drink no wine or other permanent drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. So then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent us Come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah and the angel of the God and the angel of the Lord came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her, and so the woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. And so Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? Then the angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, not, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything that I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you, you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. 
But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was an angel of the Lord. And then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with a grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended into the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all of these things or told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Manah, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtal. Now I want us to, to look at a couple things in this passage and really look at the main characters involved. And, and I think you could summarize this passage, and again, I know it was a lengthy passage, but I think we could, could summarize it like this, that God saves an undeserving people using an unlikely couple through his spirit-filled warrior. So how does God save an undeserving people? Well, if you go back into Judges 13, again, we're at the bottom of the spiral. Once again, verse 1 opens up with the Israelites doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Notice it said, again, the Israelites have done evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so the Lord gives them over to the Philistines. By the time we get to Judges 13, the Philistines are in control, and Israel's living under Philistine oppression for 40 years, which is longer than any other oppression to this point in time. And notice something else about this. Whereas in all of the previous stories, when we've gone through this cycle of, of sin, uh, oppression, repentance, del- and, and deliverance, all that kind of stuff, notice here the Israelites, they don't cry out for help anymore. The, the picture that we get from Israel is that they've grown quite used to, to, to the oppression of the Philistines. This was, this was part of the judgment of God. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so the, the Lord delivered them over into the hands of the Philistines. And the worst part of that oppression was that Israel no longer cared that they were being oppressed. The, the most severe judgment that God can bring to us is, that when, is when he gives us over to our sin, and we actually kind of like it. And as a result of this, because Israel kind of liked it, they did more than kind of liked it, they, they, they were comfortable with it, Israel is in danger of losing their identity as the people of God. They, they're in danger of being eventually totally consumed by the Philistines. As they adopted their worship, their gods, their customs, all of God's promises to bring salvation to, to the nations, not just through to the Israelites, but to the descendants of Abraham through the world, they're all in danger of being lost here. They are a people who have repeatedly sinned against God, who in God's judgment has become hardened and, and content in their sinfulness, and who are utterly undeserving of God's mercy. Now, it's real easy for us to point fingers at the Israelites, to read this with hindsight, with that perspective, and, and say, man, they just really screwed it up. Well, they just couldn't get it right, could they? But let me ask us this. Let's make it a little more personal. Is this the condition that we live in today? I mean, think about it. In, in our society uh, these days, there are so many who are beginning to speak out against injustice, against structural evil, and it, it's astonishing, really. It's incredible to hear about how people have, have tolerated sexual harassment and, and even abuse for so long. And insofar as justice is being accomplished. 
And, and as far as that, I'm thankful for the way that people are speaking up and refusing to tolerate those type of injustices anymore. And yet for all of the, the passion and the posting and the reporting, do we have the full extent of evil covered? See, here's the problem. You don't know what you don't know. It, yes, it's clear to us that there are some really evil things out there. And, and perhaps you're passionate uh, about some other injustices that aren't getting enough attention, and, and all of that might be right. But what if all of the evil that we see that we're so indignant ab about, what if that's actually just the tip of the iceberg? Is there any evil in this world that we are, are content with, or, or at least willing to tolerate? What, what sins in our own life have we made peace with? And if human reckoning, reckoning is against evil can be so severe, what must God's reckoning be like? Here's the truth, the reality for us, is that we are all like the Israelites to some degree. To some degree, we have been hardened towards sin. We've grown accustomed to it. We kind of like it. Because our relationship with God is never static. Your relationship with God never stands still. You're either moving toward God or you're moving away from God. Every time you hear God's word, every time you hear your conscience, you either respond in faith and obedience and you move toward God, or you reject Him and you harden your heart. And every time you harden your heart, there's a cumulative effect that takes place over time. And it becomes more and more difficult to move back toward Him as time passes. You know what that's like? You ever nursed a secret sin, a lust, an inappropriate relationship, an addiction? As long as you keep it secret, you might... You might quote-unquote, know that it's wrong. But we seemingly get over it pretty quickly, don't we? It's amazing how hard our consciences can get. We have an amazing ability to compartmentalize our lives. You know, the man who nurses a, a secret, a dark addiction, will at the same time teach his friends about how to fight that addiction. The, the woman who complains to, to, her, to her friend about her neighbor's slander gossips about her neighbor and, and all of her friends. The church harbors prejudice and, and unforgiveness even while we praise God and we take communion every week. Perhaps at one point our conscience was, was struck by this, by, by the evil of this. But in our secrecy and our hypocrisy, what happens? Our hearts harden and we just move on. Here's the point. No, no matter where you're at this morning, no matter who you are this morning, we are those who need to cry out to God for help. We all are in desperate need of God's help, of God's salvation. And, and this is really the discipline of confession. This, this is what Israel failed to do. Wh whether you're still keeping a secret sin or not, we are, we are those who are bondage to sin. And, and confession is how you fight a hard heart. Cry, cry out to God, ask Him for help. Ask God to show you your sin. Pray that He would give you a sensitive spirit to sin. Pray that He would bring someone into your life that would help hold you accountable to sin. And confess your sins to God. This is what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 1 verses 8 and 9. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive who? Ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, He, God, is faithful and just and will do what? Forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So where's our hope? What's our hope? Well, it's, it's this right here. It's this right here, that if we will confess our sins, that God will purify us, that he will, he will forgive us. God brings about judgment. Here's the incredible thing about God. He brings about judgment, and then he sets about saving his people from that judgment. Yes, we are utterly undeserving of God's grace, but God's grace is greater than our sin. 
In fact, if, 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 you're, if you're falling asleep right now, this is what you need to wake up and hear more than anything else. More than anything else this morning, you need to hear this, that God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than my sin. God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace, thank God, is greater than our stupidity. The God who delivered the Israelites over to the Philistines is now going to set about a plan to deliver them from the Philistines. How great of a God is that? And aren't you glad that God's help is not limited to merely what we know to ask for? God God brings a salvation that is beyond what we even know to ask for. The, The God who judges is also the God who saves. And so if you feel some undeservedness, then then listen up. There is hope for you. We have a great hope in a God who loves us and judges us, but also saves us. Manoah and his wife, they're an unlikely couple for God to use in delivering his people. If you go back to verse 2, you see that they're from the tribe of Dan. The the tribe uh, of Dan was was a tribe that basically had given up all of their responsibility in, in, uh, in pushing out the Canaanites. Um, there, there's plenty of blame to go around for all of the tribes in, in, in that and not getting rid of the, those people that were already in the, the land of Canaan. But if you were in a place the most blame, you might place it on the tribe of Dan. And, and Manoah and his wife, they're from that tribe. Clearly, Manoah and his family, they're not warriors. In fact, Manoah just seems to be a simple farmer. And add even more to his obscurity, you can also add an impossibility. They're barren. They're childless. Manoah's wife is sterile. You know, we don't know how long Manoah and his wife had prayed uh, for, for a child. We don't know how long Manoah and his wife had lived with this heartache, but you get the sense that it was a long time. Remember, we talked about this last week in a society to be without children in that, that day and age. It would have been shameful, and it would have produced a, a, a lot of great insecurity for, for the future. And so we read about this angel of the Lord that appears to this couple. And the angel of the Lord comes to, to bring Manoah's wife a message. Even though she's barren, God says, I'm going to work a miracle in you, and you're going to have a son. And the son, he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, you can read all about that in Numbers chapter 6, but, excuse me, but the Nazarite vow was basically a way for, for lay, lay men and women, you know, just people that weren't priests, to devote a period of their lives to God. And when they did so, they had to do a couple of things. They had to abstain from, from wine or other alcoholic drinks. They had to avoid contact with anything that, was uncer- with anything that was ceremonially unclean. Even if a family member died, they, they couldn't have any contact with that dead body. And the sign of their devotion for this was their hair. They, they would not cut their hair for as long as they were under this Nazarite vow. This was for a, for a man or a woman to enter into a period of consecrated service to God. What does it mean to be consecrated? Well, it means that you're now set apart. You're, you're set apart to be used by God for His service. It, it's kind of like your fine china at home. Your fine china has been set apart for special occasions. You don't, you don't break out the fine china for, for your dog bowl or to hold your composting. It, it's, it's for special occasions. People under the Nazarite vow, they, they function in the same way. They were devoting themselves to God for, for a special service to God, and they were marked out from people by these three characteristics. So how would Samson fulfill that role? Well, in verse 5 we see it says, He will begin the deliverance, literally the salvation. He will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Though though the rest of the tribe of Dan had had fled north, this boy would be a warrior, and alone he would fight for his people. 
Now you can read more about his story and in, in the rest of Judges and, 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 that, and the passages that follow. But, but let's go back to this narrative. In the rest of this narrative, we see a number of exchanges, interesting exchanges, I think, uh, that take place. Manoah's wife, who the angel of the Lord has first appeared to, she comes and she tells Manoah about what's happened. But Manoah is, is not content with that. He's got questions too. And let's be honest, men, we would have questions if some strange man showed up and started telling our wife that she was going to have a child. We'd, we'd have some questions about that. We'd want to know about that. And so, so Manoah prays and he asks for this man of God to come again. And God in his patience returns. But he appears to Manoah's wife again, which I think is interesting. He doesn't come to Manoah. Manoah's got questions, but he comes to his wife again. And so she's got to go get Manoah. And this is what I think is interesting about this, about God coming back to Manoah's wife both times. That God isn't afraid to use women in significant ways throughout the redemptive history of of our people. Even against cultural expectations. Look, in in that day and age, women had absolutely zero rights. I mean, your dog had more rights than women did. And yet God continuously shows up in the life of women to use them in the redemptive history. I mean, when you think about the, just the redemptive history of, of, and, and the lineage of Jesus, how many times does, does God appear to a woman? More than he appears to men. It, it, it's, it's women who God uses throughout the redemptive history against cultural expectations. And so let me just put this out here. Whatever cultural expectations are in place in our, in our day and age, and look, a lot of things have changed since then, and for the good, and I think. But, the, but don't let somebody else's cultural expectations limit what God can do through you. What, whatever our culture expects from us doesn't really matter. What matters more is what God expects from us. What God expects us to do, and, to, and what He expects us to do is to be faithful and obedient. And so Manoah comes at the angel of the Lord with his questions. Manoah's wife goes and gets him, and, and they, they come and they have a conversation with him. But the angel of the Lord, it's interesting, he, he basically just repeats the same directions to Manoah. Uh, maybe Manoah was expecting more specific things like, hey, make sure your son sons up for Taekwondo class or, or something like that. Make sure he's, he's a, an apprentice under some great warrior or something like that. But there's nothing like that. Now, this boy is going to be great because of God. And therefore, the only instructions he, that are worth repeating are the same ones as before. This is the full instructions of, that the angel of the Lord gives to Manoah and his wife for parenting. It's this. Manoah's wife is to avoid alcoholic drinks and not eat anything unclean. That's it. He, he repeats it. She must do everything that I have commanded her to do. If, if Manoah's got any, any part in this, it's supporting his wife and helping her to fulfill those commands during, during her pregnancy. Now, I get that's not going to sell a whole lot of books like what to expect when you're expecting, but, but this was it. This was what to expect. Don't drink anything that's alcoholic, and don't eat anything unclean. Now, it's hard to know exactly what was going on with Manoah. It might be that he was doubtful about what his wife had told him, or that he needed to see for himself. It could just be that he was reluctant and just needed some more assurance. Or it could just be that, he hey, He's a simple farmer, and he's got a lot of questions. But whatever it was, this is clear, that God was patient, that God is patient, and he has no problem using someone even as unlikely as Manoah. Throughout the book of Judges, God uses unlikely heroes 
He uses a left-handed man, a prophetess, a fearful warrior, an illegitimate son. And now he's going to use a simple, barren couple to bring about one of the greatest warriors that the world has ever known. So let me ask you, what is it that you think makes you stand out to God? What is it about you that makes you stand out to God? What, uh, that makes you particularly useful to God? Is it, is it your hardworking discipline? Your clean record? Your academic degrees? Your financial investments? Your good looks? Your cultural hipness? Okay, God can use all of those things, certainly. But you know what? When He does, you're going to be tempted to take credit for those things. Not only that, people are going to see that and they're going to say, you know what, it makes sense that God would use you. It makes sense that God would use someone like you. But, but if this passage is any indication to us, it's, it's this, that God loves to use the unlikely. God loves to use the weak, the, the, those who are on the social fringe, those on the outskirts of the community, those who people just kind of seem to write off. God loves to put to shame the wisdom and strength of the world because it is in our weakness that God shows himself to be great and better than any other God that people could have. So what areas do you feel like you're lacking in? Maybe it's social skills. Maybe it's communication. Maybe you're limited by sickness or, or physical ailments. Maybe the sins of your past continue to haunt you. These are things that maybe you feel like limit your ability to serve God. And these things that you feel like maybe limit your ability to serve God, they're actually opportunities for God to demonstrate His great power through you. The idea is not that we would ever become proud or happy that we've got these deficiencies, that we, would, that we have these uh, weaknesses, but instead that we would own up to them. That instead of trying to hide them from God, we would give them to God. We would entrust them to God, knowing that His grace is sufficient. That His grace is, is sufficient and His power is made perfect in our weakness. And realize that God using you may not be glamorous. Samson would go on to be a mighty warrior. A, a name that we all recognize from, from the annals of history. But God drove from Manoah and his wife were simply to, to bear a son. And to watch their diet. Not real glamorous, but very crucial for God's redemptive plan. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century preacher, probably one of the most well-known preachers in the 19th century. He preached to millions of people. He, he had thousands of people converted under his ministry. But you know what? It was an unknown primitive Methodist deacon who could barely get through the sermon on a Sunday morning who was used by God to convert Charles Spurgeon. Look, you might not be the Charles Spurgeon, but you might be that unknown deacon. You might, be the, you might even be the one who disciples that deacon who is then used by God to convert Spurgeon. We don't know how God will use us, but let me just encourage you with this. Don't ever underestimate God's power and His ability to use you. And instead be available for God to use. Look, I, I don't mean this to, to sound as the way that it might sound, okay? So hear my heart in this. Uh, I know I'm speaking to a congregation that is largely made up of, of people who have served God with the prime of their lives. And many of you have done some incredible things for the Lord. But could it be that God is not done with you yet? Could it be that as you face trials and losses of, of just old age, that, that you're even more useful to God than you were when you were younger, when you were more healthy? Might God have saved the most important work for you to do in this season of life? I had a, an older lady at one of the churches I served at who was 80-something years old, and, 
she was diagnosed with cancer and she was going to go through all of the treatments and people kept saying, why are you doing all this? Why are you going to go through these treatments? They're, they're going to be miserable. You're going to be in a lot of pain. And at the end of the day, the end result's going to be the same. You're, you're not going to recover from this. So why don't you just enjoy the quality of life that you have now? Don't do all the treatments. Just enjoy life and wait for the Lord to take you home. And her response every time was, I'm still breathing, so God's not done with me. And I watched her pray. I mean, man, it was, it was powerful. I, mean, I remember going to Vanderbilt University. She was getting ready to have a very extensive surgery. Uh, and honestly, a surgery that her wife, or not her wife, her, her daughter, and I weren't sure that she was going to make it through. We, we just didn't. It, it was that intense. And I watched her pray with the nurses. Pray for them. Not, not, not that they were going to take great care of her, but pray for them. Pray for whatever they had going on in their lives. I watched her talk to doctors and, and anybody that would listen to, to other chemo patients, anybody that would listen to, to her about her faith. And man, you want to talk about powerful. This little old lady who, I mean, who was about this tall and about that wide. I mean, you talk about some power in her testimony. She kept saying, I'm still breathing. So God's not done with me. And I believe that she sowed seeds that, that we will never know this side of heaven the difference that she made. But let me encourage you, if you're still breathing, God's not done with you. Which means that all of us who struggle with sickness, with pain, with loneliness, with, with monotony, with depression, with countless other hardships, realize this, it is not a wasted season of your life. God continues to use you in the midst of our difficulties, which reveals the truth and the power of His grace and the power of the gospel. Which really just means our job is just to be faithful. Manoah had all kinds of questions. But what he needed to know, God had already revealed. And what he needed to do was simply trust and follow those commands. Look, faith doesn't have to know everything about everything. I think sometimes we, get, we feel like we've got to know all the, all the answers to all the questions before we can do anything. Faith doesn't have to know everything about everything. If you knew everything about everything, it wouldn't be faith. You wouldn't need faith. Faith just needs to know what it is that God has revealed and then faithfully carry out what is in front of you. And then look at look what happened when, when people act faithfully. Manoah and his wife, they didn't know what God was going to do. They didn't know that Samson was going to be this, this mighty warrior, this great deliverer. I mean, they, they couldn't know. All they knew was that God had said, this is what's going to happen if you're faithful. And just as God had promised, we see in verse 24, the woman does what? She gives birth to a boy. She names him Samson. And he grew up, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtal. Here in this territory of Dan, Samson's born. While most of his kinsmen have fled, he remains and he grows up, and God's favor rests on him. And from an early age, he, he probably stood out. And if you, if you know the subsequent narrative about Samson, you know that he maintains his Nazarite vow. Samson's Nazarite vow sets him apart from the Canaanite culture. It, it, makes, it marks him, it makes him very distinct. And the Spirit of the Lord begins to stir in him during these years. Now, now the writer doesn't give us any kind of details about what that actually means. What exploits did Samson have as a teenager? You know, was he out killing bears and lions like David was? We don't know. But whatever it was, God was preparing him to be a deliverer, a savior for Israel. 
But notice what it says in verse 5. What the angel says. It says, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of Philistines. Not that he will accomplish it, but that he will begin. If you know the story of Samson, you know that actually Samson never delivered Israel from the Philistines. Though he single-handedly killed thousands of Philistines throughout his life, even at the end of his life sacrificing his own life, the Philistines still remained in power. But by Samson's power, Samson would stir up the Philistines to war against Israel and Israel against the Philistines. And God would be able to preserve the identity of his people through Samson. And it wouldn't be much longer before God would bring about another spirit-filled warrior who would be king, who would finally defeat these Philistines. In, in Samson, we see a picture of the salvation that we need. Look, we don't need more tips and, and steps for saving ourselves. We don't need more self-help books and, and ha- you know this whatever topic for dummies and all of those kind of stuff. We don't need any of that stuff more of that stuff what we need is a savior what we need is for someone to come and do what we could not do for ourselves and God's saving act here points to the ultimate salvation that would one day come through his son Jesus look that's what the story of the Bible is really all about we are those who live under a far greater enemy than any army or king our oppression is far worse than any physical bondage because we all live under the the bondage of sin and death and Satan we are those who are who are blind and enslaved to our rebellion and to our sin. And so for all of our self-righteousness, we're actually quite comfortable with sin. And because of that, we are all very deserving of God's judgment. But here's the good news, is that God sent us a Savior even greater than Samson. Jesus of Nazareth was born miraculously of a virgin to two unlikely parents filled with the Spirit of God, and yet unlike Samson, Jesus was perfect. He was without sin. He was, he was marked by perfect love. He brought healing to the sick and, and afflicted. He spoke words of truth. And all alone in, um, amidst humanity, here's the one who didn't rebel against God. Jesus never rebelled against God, and he didn't give way to sin. And at the end of his life, he's betrayed by those that he loves. He's mocked, and he's tortured by his enemies. He's nailed to a cross. And then on that cross, Jesus sacrifices his life for sinners bearing the judgment of their sins on himself, dying in their place. But here's the incredible, amazing news, is that by that death, Jesus did not just just begin our salvation. He accomplished it. He didn't just begin it, he finished it. We, We know this because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death. But before his disciples and before hundreds of eyewitnesses, he, he revealed himself to be totally triumphant over sin and death and Satan. And now he calls sinners like you and me to turn away from our sin, to, to trust in his victory, to follow him into eternal life. Let me just ask you, aren't you tired of all of the evil, all of the brokenness in this world? Aren't you tired of being robbed to and, and being lied to and condemned by the sin of this world by by your sin by our sin by satan aren't you sick of the fear of death if that describes you at any level the good news is there's a savior for you and i know a lot of people are hesitant to to because they'll say things like you don't well you just don't know the stuff that i've done you don't know how messed up my life is now now or how much junk that i'm hiding well here's good news i'm not calling you to clean up your life I'm not. Notice God didn't send a Savior only when Israel had gotten their act together. 
when they had an army all ready to go to, to, go to war. God, no, God sent them a Savior while they were happily at peace within their, with their enemies, while they were quite comfortable in their sin. And it's that Savior who delivers them, and so it is with Jesus. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself up. No, he goes out and he accomplished your salvation. I love this, this verse in, in Romans. Paul writes this in, in chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. And now he calls you to stop living for your sin, to place your hope in him. This is what Christmas is all about. So this is, this is the story of Christmas, the redemptive story of, of, of humanity that starts at this time of year. So why not take this time of year, this Christmas season, to know more about the Savior? To get to know the one whose birth we celebrate this time of year. To get to know the one who's the reason for our celebration. This is the perspective that I think we need to be reminded of during Christmas. Because it feels like a lot of times we live in this broken and run-down world. And Christmas is just the veneer of festivities that we put on our lives for a month or two. And it all gets washed away in January and life just goes back to whatever. But that's not what Christmas is. Christmas is that time of year when we are reminded of the truth that God has sent to His people. The true Savior of the world. And with this coming, and with His coming, a new age has come. A new day has dawned. God is undoing all of the wrong and all of the brokenness of this world and with us. Christmas is the reality which defines our world. Even more so than all of our brokenness and suffering around us. Is there injustice? You better believe it. Is there, is there sin? Absolutely. Is there sickness and even death? Of course there is. But with the arrival of Jesus, those things are on the run. Their days are numbered. They will not have the final say. But Jesus, in all His infinite goodness, and in all of His love, reigns forever. And like Manoah and his wife, we bank on the promise of God. Knowing that God has sent us a Savior. Knowing that, knowing that, that He has sent a perfect Son to be our sacrifice, to, to be our Redeemer. And that, God, and that means that God means to use us to, to proclaim that message. And nothing about that has changed. Everything else in this world seems to change on a constant basis, daily. But nothing about God's plan, redemptive plan for this world, has ever changed. God sent His Son to save us, and He has always intended for the church to be the voice, to be the messengers of that redemptive plan to the rest of the world. So, let me just encourage you with this as we wrap up. Don't, don't lose heart. Take heart. Don't give up. Don't abandon your post. Don't, don't give way to despair. Persevere in following Jesus because a new day has dawned. And because of that new, new day, let's walk in the light of His salvation. Let me pray for us.